The World Economic Forum estimates there are at least 44 zettabytes of data in the world. That means that we have 40 times more bytes of data than there are stars in the sky. We're surrounded by entire universes of data. And like the universe, this data keeps expanding. Political campaigns overcome odds by micro-targeting voters using data. Companies like Lyft and Airbnb help people monetize their most illiquid assets by using data. Most recently, public health officials allocate resources to the COVID-19 response, again by using data. It sounds like we are living in the golden age of data, where we have the tools, the insights, and the knowledge to analyze data and create better outcomes for all. But I don't think that's true. As one of my co-founders, Aaron Kalb, put it, we think we're still in the dark ages of data. And there's nothing wrong with the data itself. The issue is us. Even though we have vast amounts of information at our fingertips, we struggle with data literacy. According to the Data Literacy Project, a staggering 76% of key business decision makers do not believe they are themselves data literate. Research from McKinsey estimates that less than 1% of the U.S. population is data literate. It's like we've invented the printing press, but we've forgotten to teach people how to read. We're never going to be able to tap in to the power of data without making significant progress on data literacy. So on this episode, I'm talking with Jennifer Bellasson, Principal Data Strategist at Snowflake. Throughout her career, Jennifer has been at the forefront of the data revolution, whether that's leading teams at Forrester or studying housing policies in the Soviet Union while getting her PhD at Stanford. Speaking with Jennifer gave me the confidence that we can enter the data renaissance. And there's an incredible opportunity in front of us. Think about the innovations that we can make if just 5% more of the population was data literate. Now imagine if that number were 30. In a data literate world, the possibilities are endless. Welcome to Data Radicals, a show about the people who use data to see things nobody else can. This episode features an interview with Jennifer Bellasson, Principal Data Strategist at Snowflake. On this episode, she and Satyan discuss misconceptions around data, organizational tactics for improving data literacy, and the evolving role of the Chief Data Officer in enterprise organizations. This podcast is brought to you by Elation. Data citizens love Elation because it surfaces the best data, queries, and expertise instantly. The result? Folks know how to use the most powerful data with guidance from the experts. And with Elation, you don't have to choose between data democratization and governance. By embedding governance guidance into workflows, Elation welcomes more people to great data fast. That means your data strategy can play both offense and defense. Learn more about Alation at Alation.com. That's A-L-A-T-I-O-N.com. Jennifer began thinking about data literacy while working on smart city projects at Forrester. She noticed there were some very serious gaps in how people work with data. It was really, you know, the first report that I wrote on, on smart cities happened around the time of the Olympics in Beijing. And I don't know if you remember that, but the Beijing government was investing a lot in technology, not just in the stadium, but also across industry. They were focused on transportation within the city and improving public health and 
seeding the clouds so that there'd be you know rain at the right time and not at the times that they didn't want it. So there was a big investment in technology. And so my first report on smart cities was, you know, titled Smart Cities Think Outside the Stadium or something like that. And then from there I started, to, I took a step back and said, well, you know, what what else is happening within this space? And really just started looking at, you know, cities and the different initiatives. But one of my big focus areas was, you know, at the time, a lot of people were focused on the infrastructure. They were focused on IoT, on sensors, building out that infrastructure, you know, making garbage cans and street lights and parking places intelligent. But one of my frustrations was they were not necessarily, you know, these were the shiny objects, right? Everybody was focused on that, but they weren't really focused on helping the cities use that data to become smarter, to become more intelligent. And so over the years, I focused on um, how to structure an organization, how to improve the, the, the government's ability to use that data, what was the role of the chief data officer, uh, what kinds of things needed investment you know, across people, process data and technology. Uh, and then you mentioned, Satin, you mentioned my, my work in data literacy. A big part of it was helping people understand what data is today. And that wasn't necessarily obvious, not only in smart cities, but across, you know, across companies today. You know, data fundamentally is a lens into people's behavior. And, you know, I think a lot of a lot of understanding data is mapping it to that behavior in the world. And and that, you know, is is a challenge, right? Getting people to understand that is a challenge. How do you, how do you how did you see that in your work at Forrester? And where where did you see people struggling and succeeding? So the ways in which this became glaringly obvious to me was happened just actually a couple of years ago. I was talking to the chief digital officer at Sodexo, which is a food service management company. They run cafeterias around the world. And she was telling me what they found when they first started looking at their data in one of their one of their sites, one of their cafeterias. And at some period in time, they started seeing an increase in the sale of breakfast sausage. And that was pretty curious because breakfast sausage isn't among the culinary habits of the French. And this was in France. Uh, and so when they dug deeper, they actually found that that increase in the sale of breakfast sausage started happening or happened about the time that they had changed their traditional cash registers for point of sale machines that had individual buttons for each item. And the cashiers, maybe in the interest of time, maybe it was the easiest button, they were pressing breakfast sausage. And so if they had used that data, you know, if the managers of the of that site had used that data to order, you know, their supplies for the next month, they wouldn't have had anything but breakfast sausage. And clearly that wouldn't have been a very positive you know, breakfast experience for people. Um, but that really, really highlighted the fact that, you know, these cashiers probably didn't know that they were working with data. They, you know, they would, if they'd been asked, they would have said, no, we're, we're, you know, we're not, we don't work with data within our roles. And I ended up doing a qualitative survey with an online panel. And we asked three questions. Do you work with data? Are you comfortable working with data? And what kind of training would you like? And this was when I was doing the, the data literacy work. So I thought that third question would be the most interesting. I thought I was going to be finding out how people wanted to become more data literate. But what really fascinated me were answers to that first question. I got answers like, I don't do anything with numbers. My team's not responsible for calculations. We don't deal with statistics. No, they were clearly associating data 
with numbers and they didn't recognize recognize what data was today. And they certainly, you know, like the cashier, they probably didn't recognize how they know how their companies were using that data, the value that it potentially brought to their, their, their companies or, you know, their particular role, whether it's in capturing it, protecting or, or, or using it. So that really kind of brought home the fact that, that there are huge gaps in data literacy and, we often, you know, within the industry, we're all in data. You know, tech is now very data focused. We think that everybody knows about data. And often the vendors who are promoting data literacy focus on those who are already data literate, you know, the business analysts, the data scientists, those who are already experts. And it's important, and that this is was a you know really a fundamental part of my research on data literacy, was to focus not just on the tip of that iceberg or the, you know, the the top of the pyramid, but really work with companies to create a very strong, you know, a stronger base, more awareness of what data is within the organization. Yeah. And so how does that bridge into this sort of formal training or maybe formalized definition of this idea of data literacy? Because this idea that like, look, data just reflects what's happening in the world around you and you can't approach data just by looking at data, you know, seems fairly obvious, but like on some level isn't, or it doesn't feel like everybody really quite understands that. What does that work look like? And when you go into an organization and say, hey, you need to be more data literate, what do you do? What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, so there are a couple of ways of approaching it. I mean, one is through formal data literacy programs and really you know, trying to teach people about data. But a big part of it is also just demonstrating what you can do with data and getting people excited themselves about how you can use data to solve problems like we were talking about earlier, or to to resolve a mystery, for example, and I've got a you know there are a couple of stories that 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 came, you know that I've I'd uncovered, if you will, when I was doing some of my smart city research that really that really illustrate this. So Buenos Aires, for example, several years ago they undertook a massive streetlight modernization project, and they replaced traditional lighting with LED and. LED lighting is supposed to be brighter, you know, it's supposed to make, you know, improve public safety, lots of benefits. But when the lights were in place, they started getting complaints that the streets were dark, you know, and that was, that was a mystery there, you know, why? So again, you know, like in the case of Sodexo, you know, like in the case of this cafeteria, they dug into the data and they, by overlaying different data sets, they actually found out that the complaints were happening in summer months. And that was when leaves were out on the trees. And so, you know, LED lighting doesn't diffuse. That's one of the advantages. It, it remains concentrated and doesn't, you know, get lost in the ether. That's supposed to be a good thing. But when, the, when there are street, when it leaves on the street branches that are blocking the lights, it doesn't get around them. So the data indicated what the answer was there. The city changed its tree pruning schedule to ensure that there were no, you know, there were no leaves blocking the lights in those summer months. So, you know, those kinds of, you know, showing people, well, hey, we can we can figure something out by bringing in data and data from a variety of different sources. It's not just one data set that we're going to use or, you know, a couple. It's the more data, the more data diversity that we're going to be able to solve this problem. And I think that people tend to get more excited and can understand it in a in a more concrete way when they see it applied to a specific problem. Yeah, and particularly a specific problem that they're either experiencing themselves or they themselves are trying to solve or are trying to see. You know, I find what's interesting a lot about data stories is that in the abstract or when it's, you know, somebody else's 
problem. People don't quite understand it. D- data tends to be pretty inscrutable and pretty hard to access. But but when you make it personal and when you make it when you make it germane and relevant to that individual, it can be really powerful. The same goes with you know an employee thinking that they're going to be replaced by by algorithms and concern about about jobs and. That's another element of data literacy is to help people understand how to use and engage with data and understand new roles and how it's going to change their existing job. Another story there is the way, and again, this is a smart city example, is the way Chicago addressed their health inspections. You can imagine there's a you know group of health inspectors within the city. They've probably been doing their job the same way for years, and then they're going to be told that they're going to have to do it differently. Well, traditionally, they, you know, you, but you rip a couple pages out of the out of the yellow pages and you say, OK, you're going to go do A through L and you're going to go through M through Z. And that's not very efficient. Inspectors had to run all over the city. And so then maybe you might try it by neighborhood and that's not necessarily efficient either. So Chicago put an inspection optimization system in place to predict the likelihood of a health violation. And to do that, you know, they brought in a wide variety of data, type of restaurant, neighborhoods, were there noise complaints in the in the area? You know, what time of year was it? Was it warm? You know, what the weather been like in the last few months? Had there been past violations? I mean, you can imagine all of this data. And then what they do is they give, you know, they give a prioritized list to the inspectors who go out and it, rather than, you know, hitting up 30 restaurants that didn't have an inspection and or that didn't have a violation, suddenly they've got a list of priorities where there's much more likely to be a violation and they're able to feel like they're doing their job better. It's easier to do their job. And so bringing them into that that new way of doing things and showing them that this data and these new techniques are going to make their job much easier, it is also part of data literacy. So I talked about, I know, the way I see a a data literacy program, starting with awareness at the bottom, and then the next layer, if you will, in the pyramid, to kind of close your eyes and, and envision a pyramid, I call it comprehension. You know, it's understanding what data is, and this is more for the decision makers, what kinds of questions they need to ask about the data, where it comes from, is it is it representative of the population, what's the underlying analytic logic of the model, so that they're kind of understanding where the insights that they're being given come from. And then at the tip of the tri- the, the tip of that triangle are the experts. Of course, you need to focus on the experts as well, making sure they have access to the newest and, you know, newest tools, latest data sets. But I also advocate using those experts to scale, to give back across the organization. The model here is ACEs. So it's awareness, comprehension, expertise, and scale. So you're building data ACEs within your organization. But the scale piece is really about communicating back to the rest of the organization about what data is and how it's being used. And so we're seeing things like lunch and learns. So, you know, showcase sessions, maybe it's having a specific lunch and learn around a particular topic or setting up a booth in the cafeteria and providing incentives for people to come by and see what the data team is doing. It could be upward mentoring, assigning uh, someone from the data team to an executive to help them understand how to navigate the dashboards that they're getting, understand how to ask the right questions about where the data came from, understand how to define a data project that will solve some of the business problems that they have, kind of making those connections. You can provide resources that help employees connect data to their everyday lives. 
I've seen data literacy programs create cheat sheets. So here are the business, this is in a particular, it was Lurie Children's Hospital in Chicago. They had cheat sheets for the practitioners, the clinicians. You know, here are the medical concepts on one side and some of the questions that you might have. And on the flip side, here are some of the techniques that you might be able to use, some of the data sets that we have available, some of the tools that we have in place to help you address some of the problems that you might have. And what they what they found was sometimes those clinicians had had some sort of data data training in graduate school, but they never really put it into practice on the job. So for them, they needed that push. They needed that connection to their, their actual job to be able to see where to, where to apply some of those tools that they already had in their toolbox, but they hadn't necessarily learned how to take out and use on the job. So those are some of the things that we've seen people do. And really it's, you know, in, in recently I've been talking to a, a number of CDOs and they've been talking about their comms strategy. And so, you know, I've always thought of it as data literacy programs, but they really think of it as communicating. It's, you know, how do we communicate what we do? How do we get people excited about what we do? How do we build that broader community? Yeah, it's funny. I would even take it a step further and think of it as marketing. I mean, it's, really funny how some of the devices that you described, these cheat sheets, you know, sound eerily similar to the things that we give our sales force in the enterprise software industry to enable and train them, or the lunch and learns, you know, sound and feel so much like events where we put up booths, where we, you know, teach people who are new to our products, what those products are about and give them a demo. I mean, that marketing and sales problem it, it strikes me as so interesting that many uh, data radicals, as it were, whether they're CDOs or people who are putting in self-service enablement programs, just don't always realize that their job isn't just to stand up some infrastructure and make some data available to people. And it's a very different job. And it's an uncomfortable job often that people aren't always aware that they have to do or maybe even don't feel like they're prepared or trained or want to do. And that's a change. Like, how, how, Do you see that? Do you see that that being an emotional challenge for people or or you know, do people run right through it? Sometimes, but most of the successful CDOs that I talk to really see that as a big part of their role. And when you ask people, you know, what are the characteristics, what are the, the skills required to be a chief data officer, you know, to do this role, communication comes up as part of it. You know, it's business skills, it's technology school, skills, but it's also communication skills. And actually, one of, the, one of my favorite CDOs, he called himself the chief diplomatic officer because a big part of what he felt like he did was diplomacy. It was being the bridge across different stakeholders. It was negotiating to get access to data or to negotiating for, you know, to, to work with prioritizing specific projects. So he called, he, you know, for him, CDO meant diplomatic officer. Do you feel like that's prevalent with CDOs today? Because I know in the first version of the CDO job, so much of it was, well, we've got to get data governance in order in order to be able to prove compliance and, you know, make sure that we've got the appropriate data retention policies. And it's a lot about sort of, you know, making sure that, you know, the boxes are checked and certain regs are and policies are satisfied. Do you feel like that transition is like complete to the, sort of evangelism side of, of the job description? I, I really do. I mean, it, it was about five years ago or so, there was all this talk about, you know, CDOs become shifting from being defensive to offensive. And, 
Um, and I used to say that it's, you know, that metaphor came from American football and the, be the better metaphor of what a CDO really should be. It wasn't a shift per se. It was, you know, if, if you look at, you know, European football, <laughs> so, so, you know, soccer, but European football, um, the same team is on the field. They play defense and offense. And some of the best offensive players, you know, the strikers out there are actually defenders. So if you look at, you know, Sergio Ramos in, in you know, Spain, you know, he's a defender, but he has one of the highest scoring rates uh, in the league. And so, I, I, you know, it's not a question of being defensive or offensive. You know, CDOs have a mandate across the data value chain, across that whole life cycle of data. Uh, and really, you know, you, you talked about data governance. Data governance extends also across that life cycle. It's it's not just about security or privacy or ensuring data quality, but it's also ensuring that the right people have access to it and that the right people can use it for driving value, delivering value to the organization. So at Snowflake, we talk about three pillars of data governance. It's knowing your data, protecting your data, but unlocking your data and, and ensuring that people can collaborate securely using that data. So both the CDO, you know, the CDO really reflects that holistic end-to-end -end view of data governance today as they, they have to go in, on you know, across that whole spectrum. And I do think that the, I do think that they're, you know, that they, you know, most of them today understand that or increasingly so. You know, um, one of the things that we've seen, particularly in the US, is that the, the CDO is increasingly reporting to the CEO, you know, the chief executive in an organization. And that reflects the, that does reflect more of the strategic view of data and of data as a strategic asset. And the CDO really driving that effort within the organization. I do think it's quite powerful. I mean, I, I think that people are starting to realize and understand that their ability to be successful in the role can't be simply predicated off of, you know, making people fill out workflows and reports all day long. Um, and so I think people, I think people get that. I think what's interesting about the job now is that people having grown up often in technical fields because they're able to understand the data landscape may not always have the same training to drive sort of the cultural and you know, kind of behavioral changes within the organization that, you know, typical IT infrastructure projects or IT implementation projects never really required those same set of skills. And so I think there's a awareness, but maybe not necessarily a capability. Perhaps you're right. And that's where I would hope that, uh, you know, vendors or service providers or others that are out there, you know, helping with this transition would be, they would be able to help drive those, those kind of transformational cultural community efforts within the organization. It's about building that data culture. And we, we do hear a lot about that today. Um, and there, there's definitely an importance in that. And that's kind of the essence of this entire podcast, right? So how do you build a data culture? And so you're talking to a technical CDO who maybe hasn't done this work. Where would you tell that individual to start? What would you What would you have that individual do? I mean, you've got this great framework of ACEs. And so is it with awareness? Is it with expertise? Like, where do you go first? So I think you kind of have to hit on all, all you know, all, all fronts at, at the same time. But but not, but not to discourage them. I, I think the most important thing for a CDO, uh, particularly a new CDO coming in, is to get a quick win under their belts. And that 
you know, I go back to this diplomacy effort, it requires, you know, a listening tour. We've heard, we, you know, people talk about listening tours. It, it requires going out and talking to your peers, understanding what the, the what their issues are, what their priorities might be, finding something that's going to demonstrate the value of data. And that's your starting point. You need to have something that you can showcase as a, the way that data delivers value into the organization. And then once you have that, then the ball starts rolling. You need to demonstrate that, to, you show that to others, get others excited, um, and then more projects will come in and it snowballs. And then you have the issue of, well, how do I prioritize these? And then you go back to your, your stakeholders, you know, you put together perhaps a data council, a data governance council, what, whatever you want to call it, and put in place a, a data, you know, a prioritization pr framework for helping figure out, you know, which ones you're going to do next. But at the same time, that's on kind of the project perspective, you know, the project trajectory. You need to also be thinking of, start thinking then about the about the cultural aspects. So it's evangelizing to your peers on the on the one hand and getting them excited about new projects and proposing new projects that can be done. But then starting to you're segmenting the your your company, your employee base, just like you would a marketing campaign, just like you would anything else. And you're pitching those stories and that that you know the, the value of data to everybody within the organization. And at that point, you'd start to do the, the showcasing, the lunch and learns, the, the training sessions, office hours to people want to drop in with ideas about things. And then over time, you're creating the cheat sheets, you're maybe putting together a blog and delivering out more of that content that's going to address the base of the pyramid, the, the, that awareness level, and then, you know, working with decision makers as well. So it, it's not, you know, it, it's not something that can happen all at once. It's something that needs to happen over time. But, in, you know, in the first instance, it's, it's creating some of these quick wins so that you can demonstrate things to people. I love that idea of a quick win. And I don't think it applies only to the CDO in sort of their, you know, most senior role, but on some level to every data professional. I think data is one of these things that if you're in a large organization or you have lots of data, the idea of organizing it, the idea of governing it, the idea of making it available and describing it can just seem like this daunting, painful, you know, inaccessible task. And often what you want to do is you want to lock down and say, well, we're just going to go just focus on a data glossary and we're just going to do that for the next 12 months. And often you can get so lost in those efforts. And I, and I find that the people who are really successful almost at any level, just sort of say, look, I'm going to focus on kind of one or two things and get that right and do that cycle that you described. One of the CDOs that I spoke to it talked about how he got his infrastructure in place. He started with a few projects. He took the data that was required for those projects. He populated his data warehouse. He populated his data catalog with them and then you know, added new projects to it. And as he added those new projects, there was more data that was put into the warehouse and put into the catalog. And, and over the course of you know, the whatever time frame it was, he had built out an enterprise data warehouse, built out an enterprise data catalog without saying to everyone, stop, you know, we're gonna not do anything until we build out the data warehouse and the data catalog. And so his big reveal was, hey, look, over the course of the, you know, the time that we've been doing these projects, we've been building this infrastructure that now we have available for everything else. And it just, to me, it, it was a really valuable lesson in, in how to approach this in a more, you know, in a more agile way, you know, not wait, not stopping the clock and trying to build out something before delivering any value. 
Let's step back for a moment. If you want to build a data literate organization, then you need to meet your employees where they are. Jennifer believes that inclusion is a critical component of achieving this. So data literacy is often defined as the ability to read, write, communicate with data. But I like to add to that recognize because I don't think that maybe that like as as I've said, you know, there are people who don't recognize what data is within the organization. They don't realize that they they work with it. And so data liters a data literacy program, I think, needs to start with that level zero and just you know, have a basic level of, you know, what is data? Everything within the organization is data generating. And so you start with walking people through that, but you identify different personas within the organization and identify maybe their levels of maturity. You do an assessment, understand where people are in their understanding and their ability to use use the data. You know, one of the things I found in this qualitative research I did was that many people are not comfortable We've created kind of the haves and have nots within organization. And I got answers like, you know, I judge myself. I, I, you know, I feel badly about myself because I don't understand when people start to talk about data. It was questions of self-worth. And to me, it was really disturbing that people felt like that. So we need to make sure that data literacy programs are inclusive. I think we also need to focus very heavily on the decision makers and those whose jobs are really impacted by the use of data. So it could be, I know those who are given a dashboard or or given some sort of data or insight and expected to make decisions on it. But one of the things that I found in my research at Forrester was that fewer than half of decisions are made based on quantitative information as opposed to um, experience, opinion, or gut. And a big part of that I attribute to the fact that we don't really teach people how to make those decisions. You know, how do we evaluate, look at the data, understand where the data came from, the underlying analytic logic, et cetera. So I think we need to focus on those decision makers and anybody else whose job might have been disrupted by data um, because, you know, they might not be out of a job, but their job is transformed and we need to make sure that they understand how it plays into this, this new role. And then, of course, a data literacy program can't forget the experts, if you will. So there is that access to you know, Coursera or other online training courses, give them access to kind of professional development. And I also think that that asking them to, you know, to scale and to, to contribute back to building that community, to, to contributing to that data literacy program internally, that's a big part of their professional development. It's giving them speaking opportunities. It's helping them enhance their own skills because you know, what's better to help you understand something than to have to teach it to somebody else. So it's really looking at those, you know, the different personas across the organization, understanding their, their own, their maturity through some sort of assessment, and then creating a program that delivers content to, you know, these various personas in the way that is more suitable to them. Yeah, I love this notion of an assessment because it sort of takes data in order to figure out where you should strategize with your data programs on some level. And so you start by learning, which is such a great and obvious thing, but maybe something that people don't always do. Another element that I think is really important is, you know, if I had a single piece of advice I, I'd give to somebody and you know, obviously it's it's building that data community. It's talking about data, communicating about the projects and the successes. And, you know, in sending those data teams to help scale, we talked about all these things, but it's also about starting with onboarding. Um, you know, we have onboarding sessions on business ethics and sexual harassment. Often it's the things not to do, but we need to ensure that they're aware of data. And if, you know, if you want your company to be there or your city to be data driven 
everybody has to have that as a baseline for for the way that they approach their job. So I you know I I often advocate that you know that that's where you should start is with onboarding and when somebody comes into the organization. Yeah, and it has to be fairly real in the sense that you know you have this these dual and competing notions of sort of fear and change and then understanding data and so you know you can understand data but there are certainly cases where you can understand data and it adversely affects your role or your job or maybe you're standing politically because you're doing and saying something that a leader doesn't want to hear or a leader in a particular part of the organization doesn't want to hear and you know I think that's where it can get quite complicated because then really the cultural change gets tested and leaders have to sort of put their money where their mouth is as it were and actually drive change within the organizations uh, do you do you find that people understand that this will probably even leaders understand often that this will even affect how they make decisions and maybe make them uncomfortable too? I think that they do. Um, and you know, the, their levels of comfort, there are multiple ways of approaching it. If they're doing something that's right for the company, then I'd like to hope that they would, would do that. I mean, we, there are lots of, you know, stories of successful leaders, you know, kind of working themselves out of a job or, or you know, in, in enabling their teams so that others can do, you know, that others can do things and being able to delegate to them. So I, I think that, you know, what might be uncomfortable, you know, and being able to to embrace that, embrace that change and embrace a potential conflict that reflects a maturity on the part of a, you know, a, a leader. I think, uh, you know, having having the support from the top, if it's a chief data officer and, and they, you know, they have executive support, it makes it easier to make those changes internally. I think likewise, you know, cultivating that support from below is another, another way of, you know, addressing a potential, that, those potential conflicts. Uh, and that's, again, something that data literacy can help with. I talked about, you know, potentially assigning an upward mentor to, to you know, the executives in the organization to help them understand. And, and that's as important as, doing data literacy kind of at the grassroots level as well. If we want to get out of the data dark ages, the answer is simple. We need to translate data into information. So let's make sure we surround information with context. Let's work to lower the costs of using data. Let's reward the people and the systems that provide transparency and usability to the data that's available to us. And then, just maybe our data renaissance might be upon us. This is Satyan Sangani, co-founder and CEO of Alation. Thank you for listening. This podcast is brought to you by Alation. Is your organization ready for its next compliance audit? Data governance can help you pass that audit while also supporting innovation, accelerating analytics, and mitigating risk. Read this evaluation of 12 data governance solutions at alation.com slash DGQ3. That's Alation with an A, dot com slash D G Q three.